This morning, if you would turn with me again, I'm going to take you back. I took you away last week to speak about fathers, and today I'd like to take you back a little bit, go back to some of the things that are very important to us in these last days. For the Lord's coming is nigh. We should be living in the light of it. God says, my children should not slumber like others who slumber in the night. Why? Because by the Spirit of God, they should know. If you're a born-again Christian this morning, you know that Christ is coming soon. You have no doubt about this. You're looking at a world scene that the scientists say will end in 20 to 30 years. How could you help but believe that Christ is coming? If you read the scientists, they amaze you with how they fit so well into the Word of God. The coming of Christ is nigh, and our hearts should so rejoice in it. If God is reviving his people, Israel, politically, bringing them back into the land, as he said back in Isaiah, many of the prophets in Ezekiel, that he would bring them out of all the four corners of the earth and bring them back into their land before final judgment is brought upon this earth. If he is allowing the church to drift into indifference and apostasy, which it is by and large, and if he is permitting the nations to move and you cannot help but see this, to move toward centralization of political power, it won't be long before the end has come. Because all of these are part of the signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing things probably that's happening around us today, and I am not going to put a judgment upon all of this. I want to say this, that our young collegians and older collegians, and a few of the high school seniors, you will note, have taken up the cry, Jesus is coming. I'm thankful for that. I'm not going to talk about the different groups there are. Some are filled with error. Some are filled with power, you see. They're all different. We cannot categorize. Let us not take all the young people and cast them into one crucible. That's what the world does, you know. All young people are this or that. Don't say that. As I've said from this pulpit time and again, I have never in my life seen the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power in the young people in my church of college age as I have seen now. A desire to serve Christ as never before. A yearning for the coming of Jesus. I say that to high schoolers so that you understand if you, if you go away to college, you will come into a climate, whether it's going to be secular colleges or it's going to be those that are sectarian or religious colleges, you're going to come into a climate of Jesus' people. I believe yesterday they were outside the United Nations in a large demonstration. Jesus' people. Now, much of this may be involved with error, you see. This can happen. 
But let's not take it all, you see, and say it's all error. It's not. It takes discernment, of course, to know which is error and which is not. But at least we can see evidences. There will not be a worldwide revival. But, beloved, in those last days, the Spirit shall come down upon young hearts in many, many places throughout this earth. And it says your young people will dream dreams and have visions of what Christ means to them, you see. And so I'm thankful that there are young people within this church like never before who want to serve Jesus. I keep increasing it. I think there are 13 now who've spoken to me about serving Christ and 27 we have already out in the field serving Jesus. Never in all of my years have I seen anything like the manifestation of this in the church here at Malvern. And so I praise God for that. So while there may be error, we must also remember that there is a portion, a great portion of truth, and that our young people are seeking. God help us to help them to find. You know, the scripture says, be ever ready to give a witness of the hope that's within you. It amazes me for years, I've been here 21 years, and I, I, I was looking at some messages I brought back 17, 18 years ago on the second coming of Christ when the scene was not at all like it is now. And I was thinking here, the young people today are sort of seizing upon this thing as though it's something brand new. Why, the fundamental church that really has believed in the Savior down through the years I could take you back to the books I've read from 1850 and 1800 to show you how the great men of God believed in the second coming, you see, and preached it in the power of the Spirit of God. But we're living in those, those last days, you see. And if ever that portion of Scripture found over, and I'm just going to mention this for a minute. I don't know how far I get. As I left the house, I had talked to Alice and I said, honey, I have ten messages. I have to pick one. And I truly do. There are ten messages here. But just picking one. And there's a verse over there in Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Now, this is not to preachers. This is to everyone who's born again. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And I tell you, this rightly dividing the word of truth is a very important thing. It gives the glorious chronological logic to it all. If you were to read the Scriptures, let us say you go and you start in Genesis and you go and you read down to Revelation, you will not get this at all. You cannot get chronology step by step by step by reading from Genesis to Revelation. You may merely get the beginning in Genesis and the end in Revelation. But down through all of Scripture, you're going to find there is a repetition 
of a coming judgment in the Old Testament, and then it will come to the final kingdom, and we'll talk about the Son of Man coming in power. This will all be in the Old Testament. Then you'll go to the next book, and you'll find it is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. So that there has to be a chronology set up. And God here says to study. Now, if I ask this morning how many Christians born again, now I'm talking of people who really know Christ. Remember, Jesus says, lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Lest a man be born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's an impossibility. Flesh and blood like you see you and I have here cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Impossible. A man must truly know Christ. A woman must know Christ. A young person must know Christ as personal Savior. Have been redeemed in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We have died with Christ and we are alive with him. Reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ, being born again of the incorruptible seed of the word of God. The word of God has been the means of your new birth, but now has it become the source of study of your life? If I were to ask Christians here this morning who really say they love Christ, how much you studied last week as a born-again Christian who has the Holy Spirit dwelling in his breast, who claims new life in Jesus Christ, and I said, how much have you studied the Word of God in this past week? I think we all, all of us, would be ashamed of the amount of time that we spend. Now, I, as a pastor, that's, that's the work that I have to do. That's the whole purpose of the ministry, is the study of the Word of God. You will remember in Acts, I think it's around the 6th or 7th chapter, where uh, the, the disciples, the apostles get together, and they talk about the fact that they don't have enough time for study and for prayer. And so what does it say? And they chose out certain men to serve in the church that they might devote their time to study and to prayer. So the calling of the minister of Jesus Christ is to study and to pray. That is his great ministry. God has said, this is it. You're to study and you're to pray. It says, study to make thyself. Notice that. To show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. It's laborious, but it's excitingly so. Excitingly so. If the Spirit of God really dwells in you, you should have a hunger for the things of Jesus Christ. If your heart does not hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you can only find that righteousness studying the word of God and obeying the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not study, how can you ever be filled? You cannot. You are not a filled Christian this morning. If you haven't looked in the word of God this week and you have not studied it, you cannot be a filled Christian this morning because you are not filled by prayer. You are fed by the word of God. My word is food indeed. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. From where? From what? The mouth of God. Prayer is communion. That's another matter. 
There's a bride and a bridegroom relationship. Jesus is the bridegroom, we're the bride. Communion between a bride and a bridegroom is the most holy of things. It is that which makes a marriage beautiful. If a marriage is merely flesh, it is nothing. But the communion that we have with Jesus Christ, this is the prayer life. It's a life of communion. It's not a life of continually asking, asking, asking. It's a life of praise and thanksgiving and glory to the Lord and then bringing our petitions to him after we have praised him and thanked him and gloried in his presence. When you get on your knees, do you first establish the communion between yourself and your Savior so that you know that the commune life, that which is between the two of you, is in proper position so that then after you have communed with him and told him of your love, then you can bring your petitions unto him. What bridegroom here, what husband, would want only his wife to come to him with petitions? I want this, I want that, I want that. You'd soon say, this is not what I want. I long for your love. Tell me of your love first. Isn't that true? Listen, isn't that wonderful? Huh? Tell me of your love. That's what really counts. If I would ask any wife or husband here this morning, what's the nice, most wonderful words that you ever heard? It's when your husband, if you really love each other, and you just say, honey, I love you. Boy, what that does to the human heart, huh? What that does to the human heart. I love you. We talk of an age in which the kids are talking about love. Let me tell you, love has to be expressed at that level. That level which is a picture of Christ and his church, the bride and the bridegroom. So there is first the communion. Prayer is communion, but prayer is not the strength that God wants to flow in. If you want your communing life to be proper with God, then you have to, what, study to make thyself a servant. Well, approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed. It's laborious work. Get into the scriptures and study it and pray that the Holy Spirit will shine his light upon it, you see. And then notice what it says, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is so important. We don't want to be ashamed, do we? Say, who needs not to be ashamed? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. And so this glorious salvation we have is to both of us, to the Jews and to us. This glorious Messiah who has come, this, this Christ who loved us and gave himself for our sins. But for the communion to be strong and for the life to be strong, there must be feeding upon the word of God and there must be the rightly dividing of the word of truth. In other words, there are divisions in the word of truth. If you try to give Israel the church's blessings or you try to give the church Israel's cursings, you're all upside down. You don't understand what God has done, that he has divided the word very, very carefully. The world, if I might say, is like a great chessboard. Unto our God, and he is the one, whether we see it or not, who is moving each play very, very carefully. Have you ever watched the chess game? 
how carefully for hours they will meditate over the chessboard for the next move. But the world is a great chessboard with our God, the master chess player, moving precisely at the moment and perfectly so, so that victory has been assured before time that he will be the eventual winner. So dividing the word of truth is very, very carefully done by our God and then by you as you look into that word. Now, in Revelation 13, there has to be a division made between two characters. They are the two great characters of the last days. God says the carnal mind is enmity with God and cannot see the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. This portion requires spiritual discernment. There's probably no other. The book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Joel, and all of these require great spiritual discernment and a division of dividing the word of God properly. Now, the two characters that are revealed in Revelation 13 are the great characters of the last days. They are the two beasts of Revelation 13. The first beast is spoken of in Daniel 7 and is called, and I'm just saying this quickly, is called in Daniel 7 the fourth beast. Because Daniel deals with the four great empires on earth. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And so in Daniel, it is the fourth beast. It is the revived Roman Empire. There is to become a great world ruler. He's going to come into power in a most amazing and precipitous way. He's going to head up the great legions of an empire which we can see already in the formative stages. It speaks of Daniel and in Revelation of the ten kingdoms or the ten kings over which the Antichrist or the first beast shall reign. Just last week, I think it was, that Britain entered the common market and became the seventh nation in the common market. By 1973, as you probably read in the papers, Denmark, Ireland, and Norway have been invited to join, which will make it ten kingdoms. That was in your paper this week. So that you can see the beginnings of the formation of this empire, and it may even be now that somewhere this master ruler that the world is looking for, for the world is looking for someone to solve its problems. It's looking for some man to come 
who may have an answer to the problems that the world faces. Problems that are far beyond them. May I say this very carefully? They are far beyond the capacity of mankind to possibly undertake for. Every one of you know here this morning, whether you're in high school, college, or you're older and sitting here, that mankind has no answer to the present problem. We can talk ecology. We can talk financial structure. We can talk politically. But Jesus warns us that unto the very end, there will be wars and rumors of wars unto the very end, and the perplexity of nations in the last days would be tremendous. God says, Jesus says, there will be great perplexity of the nations. The sea and the waves roaring, humanity roaring, looking for an answer. Where is the answer? And we don't have to go any distance at all to know that great famines are already sweeping this earth. I said to Alice this morning, it doesn't seem possible that as you and I are sitting here, portions of this earth are filled with starvation and cholera. Little children are dying. Humanity doesn't seem to care about anything. The two-thirds of the earth is hungry. We live in this nation. Man is looking for someone to come along with an answer, something that might somehow... Give them an answer to the problems that they're facing that are far beyond their capacity to settle. They cannot settle the food problem. Scientists frankly admit that a great famine such as the world has never, never known will be here by 75 or 76 and will sweep whole nations out of their complete existence because there's not enough food and that the production, whether we care for it or not, that the birth rate is of such a character that no matter how much they cut it, they cannot, they've gone beyond the scope, as some scientist says, where there's anything can be done at the present moment. So great famines, Jesus says in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21, and there shall be great famines upon the earth. One of the horses of Revelation is the, is the horse of famine. Starvation! Who would have thought it possible? we who live in plenty. And man is looking for a benefactor who will come, somebody who will come with an answer to man's problem, someone that they could take hold of and say, this man has an answer. And he will come in great power, miracle-working power, and he will have a false prophet with him. That's what it tells us here in this Revelation 13. Let me read it to you, and then... We'll just get started, and then I'll stop, and then we'll go on next week, all right? But I'll read it to you. And the word there should be he, not I stood upon the sand of the sea. That looks like it's John. The word in the Greek is he, the Satan, Lucifer, the evil one. He stood upon the sand of the sea. And he saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, 
and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Now these are the characteristics, if you go back to Daniel 7, of the four kingdoms, the three great kingdoms that began, the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. This fourth one, this fourth beast that will come, who is this one here, the first beast of Revelation, the fourth beast of Daniel, will be, have all the characteristics of all the power of Alexander the Great, of the great conquerors, of the rulers of the world, but he shall be ten times worse. He shall come and he shall offer all kinds of benefits to men during the early part of the great tribulation. He will offer them solutions to their problems. He will come to Israel and he will make a covenant with them, it tells us in Daniel 9, 26. He will make a covenant with them and in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, seven-year period, he breaks the covenant with them. But in the beginning of the three and a half years, he makes a covenant with Israel. He's the one that comes and offers Israel peace. And he becomes the ruler of a large political area of the world. And he gains tremendous power as he goes along. But he offers to Israel peace. Marvelous things he does. Notice what it says about him. It says, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. Notice the first beast is out of the sea. The world of men, especially in that Mediterranean area of the world. For that's where all the rulers have come from. Remember, the kingdoms that we know of, of Babylon, Medo-Persia, of Greece, have all come from the Mediterranean area. All the kingdoms that you know of, as back far as our history goes, and we only go beyond, back to a certain point, is back to Babylon. All the rulers of all the kingdoms have come out of the Mediterranean area. They haven't come out of the United States. We've only been here a few hundred years. They have all come out of that area. And he comes up out of the sea. And the sea is the picture of mankind. He comes up out of the sea. All the world wonders at this thing that has happened. It says it is a, a deadly wound that has been healed. And beloved, both the ruler and the empire are spoken of as one. Like we might speak of Alexander's empire as the Alexandrian Empire. And this, the Roman Empire that fell after ruling for centuries and centuries is brought back to life again. And he comes up out of the Mediterranean area. And we see this political body now beginning to take form already. The signs, Jesus says, if you can discern the signs of the seasons, you ought to be able to discern the signs of the times. He says, you see Israel back in the land. You see the beginnings of the setting up of the great revived Roman Empire. You know that this is a picture of the beast and his control over that portion. Because you will remember in Daniel 9, 27, that it tells us there that the prince of the people who destroyed Jerusalem, the Romans, shall come and shall make a covenant with Israel of protection of the peace. This is the Antichrist. The prince of the people 
who would destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. Titus, the ruler of Rome, swept down upon Rome and the blood flowed through the streets in a great flood as the Jews were massacred, cast aside as nothing but animals. And for hundreds of years, they were considered as animals in England. They were considered as animals in France. They were made to pay the toll of a donkey when they crossed the bridges of Europe. That's how the Jews were treated. And this man comes forth, and what is his first act? In Daniel, he makes a covenant with Israel of peace. The world is looking for a man right now to make a covenant of peace with the Jews. May I say this? Of making a covenant of peace with the Jews. If there's one place, there's one spot upon the face of this earth right now where this is needed, it is in Israel. To make peace over there so that we could stop the possibilities of a great conflict which is yet to come when Russia shall descend upon Israel according to Ezekiel 38. And so the world is looking for this kind of a man. And he's coming. And the whole world, it says, wonders after this man. Why do they wonder after this man? Well, let me just quickly just mention a few things as I close. Why they wonder after this man. They wonder after him because it never happened before. Never happened before. No empire, no great empire has flourished and died and been revived again to their former estate. When they die, they die. The whole world wonders after this. How could this happen? In the paper this week, it says the United States is greatly concerned about what is happening in Europe because they see a political empire rising which will challenge them to the control of the economics of the world. That's exactly what God said would happen. This empire would rise out of nowhere and suddenly become a great revived Roman empire politically. The world wonders after this. How could this happen? Here is Russia in great power. Here is China rising. Here is the United States. And suddenly a great union takes place which brings them all together and they become a great political unit. But they have more than you or I have had as the United States or Britain or any other place because the dragon, Satan himself, is the god of this world and he it is who stood upon the sand of the sea and watched this man rise to great infinite power and the worship of Satan by this man and by his cohort, the false prophet, the one who comes, the prophet. Oh, how clever Satan works. Notice what he does here. And I'm just going to skip down in that Revelation 13. But notice what he does. He has the second one come up out of the land. Notice, I beheld another beast, the 11th verse, coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Why, religious leader? And he spake as a dragon, Satan's emissary. 
And he exercised all the power of the first beast and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound had been healed. You see how gloriously and how terribly so this one sets up a system that looks so much like Christ that it's hard to discern it. This man comes up, this beast comes up out of the earth, and the earth is speaking, he probably will be a Jew, and he will rise in Israel, and he will be looked at as the false prophet. In Malachi, the last chapter of the Old Testament, the Jews are told that Elijah shall come, and at every table, when they have the Passover time, there is an empty chair, and that chair is for Elijah to occupy when he comes. And they will be looking for a prophet to point to them to who the Messiah is. And when the false prophet comes, that's what he's called in Revelation 19, the false prophet, he will point to the first beast, the Antichrist, and he will direct them to make an image to him and worship him. And instead of the world understanding that this is the Antichrist who has come, the world will think Israel's Messiah has come and has an answer for our problems. And the first thing he does he, to show who he is, he makes a covenant of peace with Israel. Because the false prophet points to him and says, there he is. And Israel knew a prophet should come. Do you remember what Jesus says about this? When they come to him, the Jews, and they say to him, who is this man, John the Baptist? They say, is this Elijah? You know what Jesus says? If you can receive it, it's Elijah. In other words, if you really believe, you'll understand that John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. Make way the straight the way of the Lord. And he points to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He points to Jesus. There he is. And the false prophet comes. The false prophet, notice that's false prophet. He comes. Israel's waiting for a prophet. He comes like a lamb, horns like a lamb, religious leader, and he says to Israel, there he is, that's Messiah. And Israel makes a covenant of peace with him. And in the making of the covenant of peace, beloved, they realize they have not finally made a covenant of peace because he finally brings the greatest persecution upon them in the last three and a half years of the great tribulation that they have ever known before. And God's judgment falls upon both him and all the world. Sure, they wonder at this thing that's happening. It's amazing. The world stands back in awe. We're going to be surprised when the rapture comes and we're taken up to be with Jesus. It's going to be blessed. It could be today. But the world is going to stand back in awe when they see the Antichrist who has come and has set himself up in great power. And finally, the whole world worships him. Why? Because in Ezekiel 38, Russia and all of her cohorts descend upon Israel. And on the other side, 
are the forces of the Roman Empire, and that will include England. I don't know whether we're going to be in it. Don't ask me where the United States is. All I can say is we are called the Lion of Britain. We're part of Britain, part of one of the colonies of Britain. That's all I can think of. One day, maybe we'll be on that side. It would look that way. But that Roman Empire will be on the one side and Russia will be on the other side with all of our cohorts and said, let us go and take a spoil out of Israel. Israel's dwelling in peace. Why are they dwelling in peace? Because the Antichrist has made a covenant with them and they dwell in peace. That's what it tells us. And Russia will decide to come down and sweep down upon Israel. And they will even hear the great miracles that this one has done. That's what it said there. It told you that the second beast and the first beast had great power. And miracles were performed. Marvelous things. It says he brings fire down from heaven by the might of his power. This is Satan, the god of this world. And Russia will descend in great power upon the mountains of Israel. And the Antichrist at that point, is not that powerful and mighty. Russia. Listen, her might is far beyond anything we can possibly conceive of at the present moment. I can't help but think, I read the, the, last night in the paper, that the United States is behind Russia and the next decade is controlled by Russia in the heavens. They are four years ahead of us. They're controlled. And I can't help but believe that that station out there that's floating around and taking pictures of the United States all the time with men, not just with cameras, not just with instruments, but up there for days and days and weeks. But beloved, before long, they'll not just be stations for scientific research, but they'll be stations for great bombings upon the earth. And Russia comes with great power against the Antichrist. They've heard of his power, but they're not afraid because they have great control of the heavens. Now, the papers say so. A whole decade, it says, will go. Russia has control. We can do nothing. They will descend with great power upon Israel. Antichrist is not in that great position of power at the moment. Armies are not surrounding him. And so what happens? Russia descends upon the mountains of Israel. The God of Israel crushes them and brings down, it says in Ezekiel 38, great hailstones and storms upon them and great and terrible pestilences. And he lays them upon the mountains of Israel and Russia dies there and it takes seven months for Israel to bury the dead. That is not the battle of Armageddon. Nobody buries the dead in the battle of Armageddon. In the final battle of Armageddon, it's between God and the nations of the earth. Russia's going to die before that. And what happens is that the Antichrist and the false prophet, once Russia has died, the false prophet points to the Antichrist and says, He did it. I brought the fire down upon the earth. It was I who did it. How do you know that? Because all you've got to do is read the Scripture, see what it says. Notice, fourth verse, And they worshipped the dragon who gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Seventh verse, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints, those who are redeemed 
in the great tribulation. Jews and Gentiles will be a great body of them redeemed through the great witness of the Jews who are saved, who love their Messiah, the true Messiah. And it says here that they're given to them to make the war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all the kindreds and all the tongues, notice, and all the nations. And how many on the earth? All, say it with me, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship who? Why will they worship him? Because the world has credited to him the defeat of Russia. The defeat of the great forces out of the northern country. And instead of crediting God who brought down fire from heaven and pestilences and laid Russia upon the mountains of Israel dead. They'll point to the Antichrist. How do you know that? How do you know that, Pastor Gian? All right, let me take you this. I hate to stop. Second Thessalonians. All right, Second Thessalonians. Let's just take a quick look at that and then I'll close. Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. The seventh to the twelfth verse, this is speaking of Antichrist, the first beast we've just been speaking of, and the false prophet, but especially the Antichrist. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only who, who now letteth, or allows things to go on the way they are, will allow until he is taken out of the way. That's the rapture of the church. The Holy Spirit is not some ethereal nothing floating around the universe. He dwells in your heart by faith. When you are taken out, the Holy Spirit is taken out as far as power goes upon this earth. You never can remove him from the earth. But he will be taken out as the residence of these bodies. Notice. And then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. Notice. With all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And notice this. This is the verse. And for this cause God shall send men a strong delusion that they shall believe a lie. What lie? That Antichrist is God. How do you think the whole world will worship him? Every tongue, every kindred, every tribe, everyone worships him. Why? Because God's allowed them, because of their wickedness, to have a strong delusion. And when the false prophet in Revelation 13 points to the Antichrist, and says, make an image to him and worship him and set him up in the temple of Israel in Jerusalem. That is that which Daniel says when the abomination of desolation takes place. That is the abomination of desolation. In the temple in Jerusalem, the false god is set up to worship. And all the world worships him. Now, who won't worship him? Well, as I close, who won't worship him? Eighth verse of Revelation 13. And all that dwell upon the face of the earth. Let's not be wrong here. 
shall worship him. Notice what it says, whose names are not written, where? In the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Praise be unto our God. We will already be with Christ, but there'll be a whole group on earth who've been redeemed in the blood of the Lamb. Israelites who've accepted Jesus as their Messiah and Savior who will not give in and they'll die. They'll be martyred for what they believe, beloved. Oh, that we will understand. Oh, that we will see this is a day for the church. You know, people say to me, why, pastor? Why do you preach? You say that Catholics have to be saved. Yes, I do. But I also say Protestants have to be saved. I believe every soul is lost. And thus I preach. Catholic, Protestant, and Jew is lost until they find Christ as their personal Savior and accept the blood of Christ as the cleansing power from sin. So I don't preach that Catholics have to be saved. I preach that Catholics, Protestants, and Jews are people. And people need saving. And I consider every soul lost until they're saved. And if I talk to a man and he's redeemed, and I say to that man, do you truly know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you believe in him with all your heart? If he's saved, he will rejoice at my question. And he will say, yes, I believe it with all my heart, Martin. And I will rejoice with him. And if that soul is lost, Catholic, Protestant, or Jew, they will either curse me or they will listen to the gospel, which is a means of salvation, and be saved. If a man curses me when I talk about Jesus and salvation, I know he's lost. He's not saved. And God has given you and I the privilege of being those who will win the last souls to Jesus Christ. You shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And oh, beloved, how I pray that through that Holy Spirit's ministry, young people, older people, the power of God will reside upon you and you will look at all the world is lost. Don't look at your friends and say, they're lovely people or my relatives are nice or they give, they're so pleasant, they're so generous, they're this or they're that. This has nothing to do with it. Salvation is a relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not because I'm a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Jew or a Roman Catholic. It's a matter of what have ye done with Jesus? Whose son is he? And if the answer is, I know that Christ is the Son of God who gave himself for me on the cross of Calvary, that's salvation and nothing else. That's why Paul says, I would know nothing among you save what? Christ and him, what? Crucified. So beloved Catholics, Protestants, and Jews, and there are the three here this morning, you are lost without the person of Christ as your Savior dwelling in your breast and knowing it. So you see, I'm rather generous to everybody, right? 
You know how God said it? God said he saw that all the world, right? He concluded all the world under sin. Who knows the rest of that? Ah, that's it. That he might have mercy upon how many? All. Well, if God did it, we better do it. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy blessed word. Blessed to our hearts, and Lord, we can see a great delusion is going to come to mankind. Paul tells us about it in Thessalonians. The great deceiver will come, and people will follow him. We remember Jesus says in John 5, 43, I came in my own name to you, me ye would not receive. But there will be one who will come after me in his own name, and him will you receive. Father, we pray that this morning we might realize this tremendous drama of the ages that is going on. We can treat it lightly, but Father, we pray that this morning no soul will leave here without Christ in their heart truly believing. It's not a matter of the sectarian group we belong to. It's not a matter of Catholic, Protestant, Jew. None of these groups are going to heaven. Thou hast said that whosoever hath the Son hath life and shall not come into condemnation but is already passed from death to life. Father, may there not be a soul leave here this morning without that faith in their hearts. Bless this congregation as they go. We pray in Christ's precious name and because of the lateness of the hour, you are dismissed in the name of Christ and may God bless you richly.